Welcome to the show. I'm Brad Johnson, and this is the Do Business, Do Life podcast. I believe in the and approach to life and business instead of the either or. This show is my attempt to help financial advisors create unlimited growth and freedom in their life and their business through wide-ranging conversations with some of the most brilliant and interesting people on the planet. We refer to this mission as DBDL, doing business and doing life. What's up, DBDL fam? This is Kristen Shea. And today, Brad's going to be talking to Ian Cron all about the Enneagram, which is a super useful personality assessment tool that's going to help you better understand how you and your team are uniquely wired as human beings, how you show up at work as leaders in a way that no other personality assessment tool is. If you want to identify blind spots, foster deeper relationships, communicate more effectively, and lead like a CEO, right? Instead of a one-person operation, this is not an episode that you're going to want to miss. The Enneagram is something that we have fully embraced at Triad. It is something that I would go so far to say that we are a bit obsessed with. It's been an absolute game changer for how we're growing together stronger as a team, but also we're taking it home with our partners, our spouses, our families, implementing it there. It's an absolute game changer. Can't emphasize it enough. And a funny note here, we're diving deep on a couple of the really core personality types of the nine that we typically see in lead advisors and CEOs. Brad is a seven. I'm a seven as well. We have a lot of fun together uh, inside this very unique fun seven space. So (laughs) will be a fun episode, okay, as always. And Ian's going to share his executive summary workbook of the Enneagram, and it's going to break down each of the nine Enneagram types. So everyone on your team can go through it. And it's not only going to give them more awareness around their own personality type, but it's also going to allow them to discover how others in the office, in their lives, think and act. It's a super powerful exercise that's going to help reduce friction, improve communication, and empower your team to help work better together. So here's how to get access. One, you're going to text the number 13 not the word to the DBDL Insider phone number. It's in the show notes. I'll give it to you now, 785-800-3235. There's going to be a link in the text that we automatically send you that's going to drop you directly onto the Apple podcast page. And we're going to ask you to leave an honest rating and review of the show. We're then going to ask you to take a screenshot of your review and text it back to us. And then we're going to get your details and send the physical workbook out to you. Really, really good stuff. Please note, With text messages, text message and data rates may apply. You can opt out of receiving text messages at any time by just shooting us a message, replying with the word stop to any message you receive. And if you want the show notes to this episode, including links to all the resources, books mentioned, people discussed, you can head to bradleyjohnson.com forward slash 13. So as always, thanks for listening. This is an awesome game-changing conversation without further delay, Ian Cron and Brad Johnson. Welcome back to another episode of Do Business, Do Life. Really excited today. Ian Cron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brad. It's great to see you again. You too. I feel like between you and Michael Hyatt, I feel like you guys are competing for regulars on the show. So it's always fun when we get a chance to have another conversation. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Mike, so I'm glad to be counted in that company. Hey, he's good company to be in, that's for sure. As I was preparing, like we've covered a lot of ground on, on Enneagram and I'm going to say, based on the last show, because you came on there, and that was still to this day, it was my number one YouTube video by views from downloads. It was one of my most downloaded shows of all time. So I'm going to say like you're definitely partially responsible for taking the Enneagram mainstream inside of finance. And what's been really cool, this that conversation was probably almost five years ago now, and uh, mm. maybe more. And what's been awesome is how the Enneagram has impacted me as a husband, as a dad, now as a business owner and a founder, as we incorporate that inside of Triad, we use it in our hiring process. There's not a day that goes by inside of Triad. We don't talk about someone's Enneagram number. So it's really become part of our language and how we start to have empathy and see through other people's eyes. And so I just first off want to start this conversation by saying thank you. I don't know where we'd be at today without the work that you did that Michael Hyatt introduced us back in the days at BlackBerry. So thanks for all the work you've done to uh, educate people on the Enneagram. And I'm really excited because I want to continue down the path of educating those advisors out there that might be able to benefit them. Hey, listen, music to my ears. I'm thrilled that it's been helpful for all of you. You came in to Lawrence, Kansas and, and met with our team. And that's, we're probably about ready for round two. So with that being said, I don't want to rehash The very first conversation we had, we kind of did a deep dive into each of the Enneagram, each of the nine different personality types. 
so we're not just rehashing the same conversation we had last time. I know we're kind of dive a little bit deeper, but for those that didn't catch the last conversation, if you kind of had to 30,000 foot view, here's what the Enneagram is for those that are not familiar, maybe a brief description of each of the numbers. How would you explain it to those that are unfamiliar? So the Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system that teaches there are nine basic personality styles in the world, one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to cope, protect ourselves, and to navigate the new world of relationships in in which we find ourselves. These nine types, each of them has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type habitually and predictably acts, thinks, and feels from moment to moment on a daily basis. So let me do this. Let me run through all nine types. I'll give you a couple of descriptors, and then I'm going to tell you what the unconscious motivation of that type is. How's that? That's awesome. Okay, here we go. Ones uh, are called the improvers, ethical, meticulous, detail-oriented, analytical, and full of integrity. They're motivated by a need to perfect themselves, others, and the world. They also want to avoid fault and blame and making mistakes. God forbid. Number twos are called the helpers. Warm, caring, giving, motivated by a need to be needed by others. They have a profound need to be liked, appreciated, and approved of. And that motivates their behavior in very uh, particular ways. Threes, the performers, success-oriented, image-conscious, wired for productivity. They're motivated by a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure almost at any cost. Fours, uh, the romantics, sometimes called the individualists, uh, creative, sensitive, moody, temperamental, wildly imaginative. They're motivated by a need to be unique and special to compensate for what they perceive as a missing piece in their essential makeup. Fives are called the investigators, analytical, even more than once, by far the most analytical number on the Enneagram, detached, emotionally detached, and very private. They're motivated by a need to gain knowledge, conserve energy, and to avoid relying too much on others. These are people who use knowledge as a way to fend off feelings of inadequacy or ineptitude. Sixes, the loyalists, we think there are probably more of these people than any other type on the Enneagram. These folks are committed, they're practical, they're earthy, they're witty. They're worst case scenario thinkers as well who are motivated by fear and the need for security, safety, certainty, and support. Sevens, gosh, the enthusiasts, fun, spontaneous, adventurous, always thinking about a future filled with unlimited possibilities. They're motivated by a need to be happy, to plan stimulating experiences, and really to avoid emotional and psychological pain. Eights, the challengers, commanding, intense, notoriously blunt, at times confrontational. They're motivated by a need to assert strength and power over others in the environment in order actually to mask vulnerability and weakness within themselves, right? And then finally, nines, the peacemaker is pleasant, laid back, uh, accommodating. They're motivated by a need to keep internal and external peace to really to avoid conflict, again, almost at all costs. So that's a fast rundown. That was impressive. I asked you before we went live, I was like, can you kind of free flow on each of the numbers pretty quick? Impressive. This is why you're so good at what you do. Um, that I've only I've only witnessed one other. Just as a complete aside, I've only witnessed one other free flow like that ever on the podcast episodes I've done. Dylan Proctor once gritted a wine like that. If you ever get the chance to to meet Dylan, he's awesome. But uh, he literally freestyle flowed it like that. That was. I'll put you guys neck and neck. You just did it with the enneagram. So, <laughs> <I'm glad. laughs> so thanks. So thanks for doing that. Cool. All right. So now you're at least you've got the Cliff's Notes, or as the kids say it these days, the Spark Notes version of the Enneagram. By the way, does not do it justice. Um, so so don't just take those little bite size. But wanted Ian to give just a little context on each of the numbers. One of the things we are going to do. I'm holding it up. This is actually a tool we use internally. That's an executive summary on each number. Actually, Ian was the one that introduced us to this. So if you want to go a little more in depth, this is going to be an offer that we give the listeners to the show. And then we'll probably also link to the 
you can explain it better than me, Ian, but there's like these free internet Enneagram tests. And the people that I've talked to that take those, they're like, one time I was a two, another time I was a six, another time I was a seven. It's kind of like you get what you pay for. The one that we use internally at Triad is like super detailed. If you want to give a better explanation, but it's it's pretty thorough and has an extensive report on the back end. What's the difference yes. between the free internet version of Enneagram and the, and the one that you recommend? As a therapist, we are exposed in graduate school to what's called psychometrics, the construction of things like a personality assessment. There are PhDs who do this work. It is very, very complicated to come up with a test that gives consistent results, right? A bunch of putzes don't sit around and come up with the SATs. You can trust me that there's <laughs> there are committees of PhDs trying to make that thing, you know, what it is. The same is true with an Enneagram test. If you go into a, uh, some kind of magazine, here's 10 questions, figure out your Enneagram type. You are off to a loss. The best test out there at the moment is what's called the IEQ-9. It's a test that's offered on my website. I, it's the only one I really trust at the moment. The validity and the, and the credibility rate is very, very high because the sample pool is high. I will not bore you with all the statistical research. Just trust me when I tell you. Uh, it also has a 22 or a 44-page report, so it's very, very robust. So I, people could just go to my website, egancron.com, and find out about the IEQ-9 themselves. Cool. Appreciate that. This is a an aha. So we use this inside on our team and Ryan on the team. So we coach a lot because obviously we're working with small businesses. And when you bring new people together, obviously there's a forming stage. Then there's actually a storming phase where they get to know each other mm -hmm. a bit and like work out their differences. Then it goes to norming. Then it goes to performing. Mm -hmm. So we we've been coaching on this for a year. Ryan busts out this report from his Enneagram. And he goes, did you realize on like page 17, it actually says where you go in storming phase when you're in forms mm -hmm. of unhealth. So it actually directly matches some of the coaching we do. So this is a very thorough report is the reason I share that. It, it looks at many different angles, the wings, where you go in health, where you go in unhealth. And so if you want to like get really detailed on how this stuff works, highly recommend the one that mm -hmm. Ian just shared there. Okay, so let's let's talk. This is something I've seen as people get familiar with the Enneagram, I took a few notes. I love that you said an unconscious motivation. I was, cause I was trying to explain and it's almost like your natural wiring, the natural lens you see through, but you said how you act, how you think, how you feel. So on that note, the feel part, almost universally, when someone hears their Enneagram number the first time, they have like, um, almost like a visceral response, like, ah, that one, I don't like that one. I'd rather be this one. Can you tell, like, why does that happen? Like, why is that a common response? Yeah, well, it's very uncomfortable to feel like someone's been reading your mail, right? Enneagram is uncannily accurate, right? Uh, it, it gives you, well, now I guess what I would call it is they give, it gives you a low definition picture of the inner architecture of human beings, but it is a much greater level of definition than the one most people operate with all the time. And when you get that level of clarity about yourself, it can be very uncomfortable, right? Also, you know, the Enneagram, if you're looking for flattery, it's not a great instrument for you because it's going to reveal that which is best about you is also what's worst about you is what's worst about you is what's best about you. It doesn't pull punches. It's going to say, hey, these are your areas of growth. Here are your blind spots. This is the stuff you got to work on. Everybody likes strength finders for the obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Test. Feels yeah, great. it's a feel yeah. good test. Now, I love, and don't don't misunderstand me. I love it. It's great. It has a place. Uh, but one of the reasons I love the Enneagram is is that it's uh, it gives you a real three sixty view, and I think I think that's important for leaders, and I think it's important for everybody to realize. Okay, what is it I don't know that I don't know? That's really important. Yeah. What you, what you just made me realize in that little comment. One of the core values at Triad is check your ego at the door. The Enneagram is a check your ego at the door sort of yes. self-assessment. That's really what it is. Yes. If you, yes. Yeah. Okay. So I want to start to dive in. I think the easiest place to maybe start here, we've, we've focused, I think, on the last, last couple conversations is really the internal focus. And I want to hit one thing because you shared this out in, in Nashville when you spoke to our members and you said the number one principle, I think, or the number one characteristic of leadership and success was 
self-awareness, I believe. And it was, I forget yeah. which study you quoted. It was Harvard or one of the Ivy League schools that had done an in-depth study on this. So if we look internally, like you said, it reveals something maybe you're not always aware of blind spots. Can you expand on that? Just how you've seen this self-awareness, maybe specifically through the Enneagram, kind of open the blinders for for different leaders or different business businesses that you've dealt with? Oh, man, absolutely. The study, by the way, for anyone interested, was a study done by Cornell University and in cooperation with Green Peak Partners. And what they wanted to determine was they, they looked at the lives of 72 high-performing CEOs of companies ranging in value from $50 million to $5 billion. And they wanted to figure out what's the number one characteristic that accounted for their success, right? And they thought it would be grit, determination, strategic planning, you know, education, IQ, whatever, right? And then the, the conclusion of the study really upended all the researchers' predictions and the, the key line from the conclusion of the study, the key predictor of success among leaders and executives is self-awareness. Now, what does that mean? Self-awareness, I think, is the ability to monitor and self-regulate the way that you're acting, thinking, and feeling in a, in a given moment. It's to be familiar with uh, your operating system, how you show up for life and how the way you show up for life affects other people so that in real time, you can make choices about the ways that you're acting, thinking, and feeling, right? To have the best kinds of interactions that you can have with other human beings, right? Let's face it, in business, what is the number one challenge people have to face? Relationships. It's, I mean, business is a friend of mine who's very successful, said to me very recently, said, relationship, business is all about relationships. And, and you know this as a guy who's, you know, working with lots and lots of people and, and supervising lots and lots of people. How much time do you spend doing personality management? A lot, right? So to have self-insight and then, as importantly, insight into the inner workings of other people gives you an enormous advantage right? Once you have that, there's all kinds of things you'll have happen. One is employee retention. You'll have people who feel like they're understood and they're and valued. You're going to have people who know how to handle conflict better. You're going to have great less communication uh, problems inside the house. You're going to, I can just go on and on and on. You, you're going to have more of a culture of care and humor. As you know, I mean, the Enneagram is just a great inside vernacular that people For can sure. use with yep. each other, right? Give you just one last thing on this, and sorry about my passion, but Ray Dalio, who I know that you know, you know, the hedge fund manager. He wrote the book. Um, yeah, he wrote the book Principles. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And he uh, uses personality, he uses multiple personality assessments with all of his people. And he says the reason isn't because it helps with hiring or placement or that stuff. He says because it gives them an instant vocabulary to talk with each other about who they are inside and how they move through the world. And to him, that's invaluable. Like that's part of the secret sauce that leads to success of a, of a team. And I think that's true. I've seen it over and over again. Yeah, I, I think, and I may be butchering this, he calls it radical either transparency or radical basically communication, some form of that. But it's, it's almost like, yeah, we're going to tell you what you don't want to hear here. But it's yeah, it's radical, gonna... yeah. Yeah, he calls it radical transparency. I, I, I have. Yeah, it's, it's a, it is a very innovative, a little kooky, uh, the way that it's used inside the house there. But anyway, he does believe in in the the use of assessments and and personality things like the like the enneagram. And I think he's onto something really real. Like when people have self awareness, they are better leaders, better team people. The, to the degree that they don't have it, they blow guardrail to guardrail through organizations and people's lives. I'm just going to tie this together because what's that study and your example with Ray Dahlia, it works in every form of leadership. Uh, we had Jocko come out to our experience in Austin in January, leading a SEAL team. He said a couple of things that really hit home with me that kind of just reinforce what you're sharing here, Ian. He said, there are no, no bad teams. There are only bad leaders. Mm -hmm. And he talked about just the accountability of being aware of how you show up as a leader, how that then obviously comes down to the team. But he actually shared he's got a new product coming out. You'll appreciate this. Maybe you'll you'll buy one and use it. But um, he's doing a mirror. And at the bottom of the mirror, all it says is problem identified. Don't you love that? But that's like <laughs> self-awareness, right? That's like self-awareness in a product. 
Yes. Um, and we've all been, I think, around people that have a lack of self-awareness. And oh it's like, it's painful. It's painful. It's, it's awful. It's like, who's going to tell them? Who, yeah. Do you want to tell them? Should, should you tell them? But like everybody's standing around and trying to like help the individual. But, yeah, you know, it's so funny because today I was on a call with a, uh, a woman. It was a coaching call and she is a, in a startup. And uh, she has an investor. They're doing super well, but they're in that very fragile period, you know, and they have an investor on the board that is just a bully. I mean, a kooky bully. And uh, we were talking using the Enneagram to try and figure out, well, how, how this is a person who has no self-awareness and they are creating all kinds of problems in a company, the little company that's doing really well after three years, they're already at $25 million in sales. I mean, they're really, they're doing great, right? This person is just killing it. Anyway, I just was able to say, look, we got an eight on our hands. We have a very unhealthy eight on our hands. And right now you're trying to uh, interact with this person on the basis of diplomacy. And that is only reinforcing this person's distrust of you because they actually need you to come at them with the same energy that they are. You know, they're looking for you to stand up for yourself. Yep. And um, this is where the Enneagram comes in, you know, really, it just, it just can save you a lot of time is knowing and figuring other people out and how to be with them in a way that moves balls down the field with uh, the least amount of damage or problems and uh, with the most amount of joy, really. Yeah, it's to your point. I'm, I've taken, I won't say every self assessment. I've taken Colby, I've taken Strength Finder, I've taken Disc, I've taken Myers Briggs. Hogan. So I'd probably. say that's a, yeah, I've, I've taken a pretty good spiel of, of what I'd say the most um, well known personal development or assessment stuff. I'll tell you, every single individual that takes the Enneagram, um, because we've had every triad team member, we're up to close to 60 now. And, um, our community, when you came out, we had everybody take it. What was cool, we had husbands and wives next to each other. And this just almost instant, you said, read my mail, reading my diary, whatever it is. Like, that's how I felt the first time I, I read your book, The Road Back to You. And it was like, I took the test. And then it was, I went straight to the Enneagram 7 section because as Michael Hyatt says, it was about my favorite topic. All of us <laughs> are favorite topic. So I went straight to my section and um, I was like, oh my gosh. This is ridiculous. Um, and But what's interesting, that has been a very common response to every single one, all the way to nine, all the way in between. Everybody's like, wow, this is like crazy, scary, accurate, like how it just it like expressed who I, how I kind of show up or how I see the world. So I want to go to now, once we start to understand the concept of the number, what are some ways, because we focused a lot internally, kind of self-awareness. I wanted to hit that real quick, but I now want to extend that externally. One of the things that I think is the biggest hurdle for a lot of advisors that start to have a level of success is they have to transition from financial advisor, it's all on my shoulders, to business owner slash CEO. Now I have to grow and empower a team, very different skill set that takes people skills and self-awareness. And that, for some, is a pretty rough transition. It's a new, new learned skills that they just haven't used up to that point. So if you were going to give this hypothetical financial advisor that wants to now become business owner, grow a small team, maybe 5, 10, 15, what would be some ways that you start to look through the Enneagram lens to assist that journey? Yeah. Well, let me just give one piece of advice that's just in general. And, and that is when an organization grows, Anxiety mounts, and as environments get more and more difficult, let's say the market environments get more and more difficult, anxiety grows. And the tendency is, in those situations, is to micromanage. Like your first tendency is going to be, I have to get down in the weeds because there's a certain, it's sort of a panic response, right? Yeah. And hopefully if you have the right team in place, I always encourage leaders, resist that temptation. <laughs> Got the right team in place. If you got a CEO, whatever is in place, just try not to go back to the same level of micromanagement that you're used to in those moments. Try to stay up top, you know, on the thing, because, you know, it's the same principle on a boat. In a storm, you don't want someone not in the helm, 
right? You, you know what I mean? Like someone's got to be high enough up while the rest of the ship is doing their job and not to get down into the weeds and start rowing and like you know, doing the knots. I mean, that's something I've seen a problem that happens over and over again to people. I don't know how your organizations are structured, but that's certainly true in corporate settings with uh, over larger organizations where someone's in that role. Um, I, I would say that um, as that transition gets made, this is where self-awareness really, really is terrifically helpful. It's the ability to self-observe, right? Like a lot of people just go through the day not observing themselves at all. They're just like on autopilot, running on the same old patterns and that either worked or didn't work for, for not for, for a long time. And this is a tricky transition, I think, for certain types. Uh, we were talking earlier. We think that in your industry, you're going to meet a lot of threes, performers. You're going to meet a lot of sevens, the enthusiasts. And you're going to meet a lot of eights, the challengers. Now, this is not going to be as hard for threes, right? Threes actually make very good CEOs. They have some risk aversion, right? So they uh, don't upset everybody in the in the ecosystem, you know, too much with new ideas that scare everybody, right? And they're pretty good at, at managing people. For example, Hyatt, Mike is a three, strong three. Yep. And he's fantastic in these sorts of situations, right? You know, eights. Aides have to be careful about being autocrats, that they can be, you know, uh, have to be very observing about rolling and bowling through people's lives, you know, being impulsive decision makers. <laughs> that doesn't, that can work in early in, a, in the phase of an organization, but when it gets bigger and requires management, it doesn't work. Like, you know, there are studies that those types of leaders, challenger type leaders work very well in the short term, but if you maintain it over the long haul, it goes like that. The benefit is only good for a very set period of time. <clears throat> Interestingly, it's very self-aware leaders have this ability, right? But the guy who bullies in or the woman that bullies in is going to go, they're going to tank after, a, a, it's going to be a very short-lived win. Sevens, oh boy, it can be problematic for some of them. It's hard for sevens to be managers in some ways. They are amazing entrepreneurs. In those first three to five years, you cannot beat them. No one can get in a whiteboard and make more stuff happen. They're charismatic. They are energized. They're the first person you want to see when you walk in the office in the morning. They are just inspiring. They are so they are so optimistic and they believe that anything is possible and everyone is willing to follow them. Amazing leaders, right? In my experience, particularly in those first three to five years of an organization's life cycle, but the moment it starts to head into management, Sometimes sevens need a little help to, alongside of them, right, to continue to do stuff that, because the problem for some sevens is that there's routine. If it starts to turn into routine, that's a big problem, right? If they start to feel stuck, that's a problem. If they get bored, that's a problem. <laughs> they have to just, you know. Hey, guilty. I know. Uh, and so yeah. there are ways to work with this, right? But the self-awareness you need right, as you make these transitions is super important. Like to always ask the question in the hallway between two open doors, what does this mean for me now? Who will I have to be in this moment to meet the requirements of leadership? Because it's a different moment. And uh, not to assume that what worked in the stage one is going to work in stage two. It probably won't. Yeah, I want to, I'm going to get like pretty uh, transparent and honest here, um, which by the way, that's what podcast is for us have real conversations so sean my business partner is a three i'm a seven and for you for those of you listening in first off i know in finance many of you have partners like we work with husband wife teams we work which sometimes one is kind of the advisor one is kind of the op side that's pretty common um, we work with a lot of partnerships where both are financial advisors uh, we've got partners up to three or four and so obviously there's more variables, the more people, but here's, here's a real life example. And I'll just kind of play out and Ian, feel free to add color commentary to this. I would say I'm pretty entrenched in a seven and Sean is pretty entrenched in a three. I think most people, if you would read it, you're like, that's Sean three, that's Brad seven. It's not like, eh, he's kind of teetering between a couple there. And here's, what's really interesting. A, a real life case study of what the Enneagram has done for business partners. So I've known Sean since college. We grew up in the business together. Our previous life, he was employee nine. I was employee 12. We literally worked side by side for almost 15 years. Same role. He's building his book of business with advisors. I'm building my book of business. So we're doing like 
side-by-side things. I'm observing how he does it. We're learning from each other, all of that. Then you partner up in business and everything changes, right? And what I will say is the stress of partnership, the early days, lack of cash flow, the lack of having a partner before. It's kind of like marriage. You do things as a single person, then you get married and somebody else has a different opinion on things. And I will say, had it not been for the Enneagram, there were some really, really tough conversations as we grew as partners, as we learned to work side by side and complement each other. As, as one of my friends says, don't forget your differences are a strength, although it does not always feel that way in the moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And But I'll tell you what helped me right here that that book. I looked at pet peeves. There's a pet peeves section here. And I noticed when we would kind of get gridlocked in a big decision or, hey, a tug of war, I think it should be this way. He thinks it should be that way. Oftentimes, a lot of my communication, I'll just throw a few at you for threes since Enneagram three is about execution, right? They run off a to-do list. I I think I heard you share it, Ian. Mm -hmm. Inefficiently run meetings when people block the path to their goal, people who don't deliver on what they say they're going to do, people who move too slowly, when people waste their time. So. These are just a handful of pet peeves, right? That I just rattled off there. But what I realized is how he processed and how I processed information was different. And without knowing that, it created frustration. With knowing it, it created awareness that actually helped us run the business better, where we kind of checked each other, strengths and weaknesses, you know? Anyway, I just want to share that because I know a lot of the advisors out there, like they've got great partnerships, but every partnership comes with you know, its own struggles and communication and all of that. And I just found the Enneagram was incredibly important to help us grow together, to, yeah. to lead a company. And yeah. so I don't know, maybe maybe you can be, you know, dissect what I just shared or maybe use some other examples, but what, how have you seen that play out in other partnerships or people that have to work together like really closely to, to yeah, lead man. a business? Well, you, you've just articulated a principle that I operate with, which is one of the greatest mistakes a leader or business leader can make is to presume that their way of seeing the world is normal. Mm. Because if, if you do, when you meet someone who uh, sees the world and processes the world differently than you do, you will feel justified in judging them abnormal, right? You're going to be like, that's not normal. Assuming that your way is, well, if the Enneagram is right, and I believe it is, there are nine normals. And if you don't learn the normal of the person you're working with, you're missing out on the opportunity to take advantage of the way they see the world, the way they process life, the, the way that they make decisions, the way, et cetera, et cetera, right? Let me give you, I'll give you an example of one. I worked with a company in Atlanta and I loved these two guys. The guy who was a founder is a seven. He is a classic seven. And he built a business that is big and it's interesting. It's a fascinating business that he has. Uh, and they, they, in a very short period of time, absolutely crushing it, right? His COO, who also is his best friend, is a strong six. Mm-hmm. Now, the six is the loyalist. Sometimes they're called the devil's advocate. As I mentioned earlier for your folks, just by way of reminder, these are people who are worst case scenario thinkers. Now, listen, Brad, when uh, you tend to process anxiety with optimism, a six is going to do deal with fear through manage it with pessimism. All right. Now, those two could be at loggerheads with each other. But let me tell you, they have the best dance in the world, man. Those two love each other and they laugh with each other about. And here's where it, the, the genius of it is. The two of them recognize they know each other's types. They know each other's blind spots. They have a sense of humor about it. And. They can correct the excesses of the other. So when the six becomes excessively pessimistic, the seven can go, ah, no way. And then vice versa. That six can tap the brakes on an overly enthusiastic seven who might be moving too quickly in a direction that requires more prudence and deliberation, right? And so what you're describing with Sean is just the same thing I've seen over and over and over again in great corporate leadership is that. When you have people on board who have self-awareness and they understand each other, right, then they can come to the table with complementary gifts that at the end of the day only serve the best interests of clients and and workers, right? And so I'm thrilled whenever I hear people describe scenarios like you just did because 
it's what you want in in yeah. in leadership. Well, so what's funny, you just gave a seven, me six example. My wife Sarah's a six. Mm. And so we, you know, I, I shared this with you. So when when Michael Hyatt, um, so he I mean, I look back, I'm like, wow, this is an incredible place to learn about the Enneagram. He took us all out to Blackberry and it was kind of like a marriage retreat. He brought you in as a guest. We spent a full day. And in one day, one 24 hour period, I felt like I knew my wife better than I had. And we'd probably been married a little over a decade at that point. But like, just to your point, to reinforce how this not only works in business, but also at home, all of these frustrations, Sarah calls it realism, by the way, instead of pessimism. Oh, I know. Oh, I I know. (laughs) I've heard that a million times. But anyway, it is a good balance. I, I, I think we're like same coin, opposite sides. And we balance each other out. And sometimes I have to say, hey, you know, the sky is not falling if this happens. And sometimes she has to say, you know, hey, it won't always just all be good. And I'll say it's just like, it's really cool because it's given me awareness of one of her strengths that now doesn't have to be conflict. It can actually bring us closer together to balance each other, joke about it, all of that. Um, I want to say one other thing, because you said something early on, you said, the Enneagram is not about number shaming. Like everybody has a little bit of every number in them. And we talk about like in places of health and in place of unhealth. But what advice would you give so this doesn't become like weaponized inside of a business? Because I think there, there's obviously that could happen if you let it. You know, as you know, uh, part of my day-long workshop on the Enneagram in corporate settings involves a whole thing on Enneagram ethics. But one of the ones that we I'm always highlighting for people is you can never use the Enneagram as a tool or a weapon to shame or insult people. And I've seen this over and over again. The Enneagram is so, as I mentioned earlier, accurate that when you use it in a poor fashion, it will cause you more problems than it solves, right? So in one of those ways is, and I've seen, oh, you know, Brad, you gosh, you're being such a seven, stop it, right? Or, oh my gosh, you know, laugh, 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 you know, you're such a three, you know, and I'm like, please don't. Like the Enneagram, the purpose of it is a powerful instrument. Don't use it for any other purpose except to help people advance on the journey toward becoming the highest and best expression of who they are and that they can become uh, their, I don't like to use the word best self anymore, that phrase, but you know, you get the idea, right? It's like for them to become uh, what they were meant to be and to succeed in the way they were meant to succeed, right? And so yes, you do definitely want to be careful of, of ever using it as a way to dismiss somebody. Yeah. I'll tell you one one thing that happened organically. And by the way, this this is where back to the test and you said all the I forget what you said, psychotherapists, like all of the metrics they track. So we took this test after uh we probably had 20, 25 team members that had already been hired. What is like eerie? is how the numbers sorted out based on the positions they were in inside of trial. Mm. So, so Enneagram 2s, the helper, were both Sean and I's executive assistants for Enneagram 2s, yes. a very much yeah. like servant leadership sort of role. So, and as a reminder, an Enneagram, like the way I kind of phrase it is it, it charges, it recharges their battery when they help others. Would you say that's mm-hmm. a decent way of just like high level? Sure. Yeah, sure. So an EA would do that all day. That's like a very support role, right? Our director of culture was a two, but a ton of these different, what I would call servant-hearted leadership people, Enneagram twos, and they're literally in that role inside of our firm. Back to your threes, eights, sevens, Sean's a three, Nick, our other coach, is a three, Ryan's an eight, I'm a seven, Jordan a three, Colin that's on the sales side, seven. So it's like crazy, like threes, sevens, eights, all in like sales kind of kind of front-facing advisor roles. Enneagram ones, new business, like high attention to detail. I'm looking here at my notes. We mentioned fives earlier, super analytical. We have a CFA. He's an Enneagram five, so a very technical role. The head of our portfolio management, Enneagram five, right? So it's like, once again, like you can't make this stuff up. It tells me Mm -hmm. there's a lot of truth in this test, but let's go back to the three, seven, eight. So if I'm an advisor slash founder in the three, seven, eight role, and I'm looking to my team that is probably comprised of ones, twos, fives, nines from kind of at least our cross section of, of our teams we work with, 
what do they need to start to think about? And I know I'm, I'm like throwing a lot of variables at you, but maybe you want to break that down by number, or I'm just curious, like if I'm looking through that lens as an advisor, how do I start to make sure I'm, I'm leading, empowering, having empathy for, for my team? The number one is you have to become a student of your team members' numbers, right? And you've got a great little document there, that booklet that, I, that, you know, that we provided for you there, the executive summary. So get your team to take a test, right? Or read a book together or have me come in and do a day long or a day and a half long uh, with your team. And so we got to identify types first. Then they have to become students of other people's types in addition to their own right? If you want to know how to manage somebody, you better find, you know, you can't just, it's not enough to know your own type and that's it, right? That That is not going to be very helpful uh, ultimately. And you're talking about ones, twos, fives, and nines. It's hard for me to do this entirely because three, yeah. sevens, and eights are all going to have a different re, re, set of challenges with ones, twos, fives, and nines. Well, here, let me, let me, let me I can but I can answer. Case study. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I can I give know. you a couple of answers, right? Whether you're a three, seven, or eight, first of all, let's just talk about that threesome first. In addition, there's three triads in here, right? One is three, seven, and eight. Another one is one, two, and six. And the other one is four, five, and nine. So I'm going to give you very fast on this. They're called stances. Three sevens and eights are in what's called the assertive stance. That means, Brad, when you see something that you want or that you need, you will go and ask for it or take it. You don't sit back. You know, it's like you're a go-getter. Okay. Just think of it that way. The four, fives, and nines are withdrawing types. So when they need something or want something, they tend to move inward or away from people to find the resources to meet those needs. If you're a one, two, or six, you're going to move with what we call, you're, you're going to move toward people to get those needs met, right? You are aggressive types. That doesn't mean bad aggressive. It just means you're uh, very proactive, assertive, often very socially confident. You know, you're going to go get it. Other types are not that way. So we have to, first of all, a little bit of self-awareness, realizing, oh, I'm a moving toward, you know, a moving, I should we say moving against. But mm-hmm. now, so you have to keep that in mind that the other numbers that I'm about to talk about are not uh, numbers that are assertive. One, two, five, and nine, not assertive types, right? You are. So you have to manage your energy with those people, lest you become overwhelming to them with all that moving uh, moving against energy, right? Ones, uh, what three, seven, and eight need to just re- remember about ones is they don't cut corners. And sometimes in business, it's a little bit, I don't care, I don't need the details, just do that. You know what I mean? That's going to drive a one crazy. Like a one is going to be like, there are protocols, there are guidelines, that things have to be done like this, things have to be done like that. I don't like it when things are unpredictable or when you change things midstream. I don't like it when you improvise in the moment about how something's going to get done. Which, which, by the way, three sevens and eights tend to gravitate towards, right? Yes, particularly sevens and eights. Yeah, especially sevens and eights. Threes could be a little bit more measured than a seven and an eight, but yeah. You know, with twos... So so real-life example before we get off the one. Great. And I'm looking at at the pet peeves. So kind of like to your point on being put on the spot, I remember we had a, a one on our team, and it's like a live presentation. And we're like, hey, uh, can you pop up real quick and just throw five minutes up and just kind of talk about this thing? That's like the number one of the top pet peeves for a one is kind of being put on the spot without preparation because it's kind of, we had a couple ones and I asked them, I'm like, how would you prepare for that? They're like, I would have a bulleted outline. And then I would run through that bulleted outline about five times practicing it. And then I would probably practice it about five more times. And then I would feel like I'm ready and prepared. And when you take somebody wired that way and like, hey, We've got five minutes for you. You want to just hop up and like wing it? That will create frustration and friction, right? right? So yeah. we experience that internally, like real life when we ask a one to do that. And once we understood how a one operates, we don't do that anymore. Yes. And so you've just saved a lot of heartache and time. You may have just held on to uh, an employee that you might have lost because you didn't understand who they were inside. Because if you have repeated yep. violations like that, after a while, they're going to think crappy boss. Doesn't understand me. Doesn't understand the way I see the world, right? Now, by the way, there's another number that even hates that more. And that's a five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fives, fives. Oh, golly. That that would be an absolute nightmare. They have a thing called preview and review. Want to preview everything. And then later they want to sit back and review what happened, right? But they need time to prepare. Uh, they do not like, especially, I think even more than once they hate it. 
it freaks them out. On the other hand, I could get you to do it in a heartbeat as a seven. It you know? would actually be painful to me. I mean, it depends on the topic. Obviously, I don't like to just go up and wing it in anything. But as long as I've got like three to five bullet points and I feel like I'm fairly educated on the topic, cool. Let's go. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. But, you know, understand something. Your type tends to be socially very confident, number one. Number two, you tend to be very good up front, right? You're charming, you're persuasive, and all of that can be put to really good use, right? People are deeply affected by your enthusiasm, and you also typically, uh, sevens are very, uh, they're quick-witted, but they're also quick with words. They can put stuff together on the spot very, very quickly. There are other types that just, that just doesn't work right? They, they have other gifts, but that's not one of them, right? Mm-hmm. So with twos, come, yeah, this is sort of easy. You actually did mention something so interesting about twos. They are, we call it the power behind the throne. They are excellent mm-hmm. at being powers behind the throne, right? They are, they know that uh, actually generals don't win wars, sergeants do, okay? And so twos are really great. Like, for example, if someone is if they're a little uh, concerned about their relationship with you, they're going to go to the two and say, hey, you know, and then, and then the two is going to be able to say, don't worry about it. I'll talk to Brad. And then she, he or she's going to go to you <laughs> and say, and say, you know, I was talking yep. to Jim today and Jim is kind of feeling X and they know how to deliver the news to you in a way that doesn't put your nose out of joint. You know what I'm so, saying? So there's a real life story on it too. So Kenzie, our director of culture is a two and she's like, like all live on it too. And so we were talking Enneagram. She loves the Enneagram. I mean, she, she helps like bring this into triad into our culture. And, uh, I go, Kenzie, I go, you kind of deep down think like you can make everybody like, you no matter what, huh? And she like laughs and she's like, yeah, I think so. And, And what was funny, I witnessed this. So there's, there's an individual in our building, Let's just say they're like maybe a little grumpy most days when you pass them in the hallway. The next thing I see Kenzie, just like they're chatting, she's smiling. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Kenzie, you won her over. And she's like, it just took me a week or two. That's, and that's I mean, a long time. That's a long time yeah. for a two. Uh, when it comes to two jobs, and I can, three jobs, actually. The three jobs I've seen them shine in, and I can call it almost every time. One is like EAs, right? Uh, tremendous. Another one, customer service. You can't beat them. These are the helpers, by the way, for people who have forgotten what what a two is, right? The third one is HR. They are geniuses in HR. And then event planning and execution. Those, I can just off the top of my head, I just know. "Eh, If you got two in one of those jobs, chances are they're killing it. But just remember, when you're working with them as a three, seven, or eight, this is important. You guys, all of us need encouragement. All of us need to be told that our contribution is valuable but man you cannot tell it to enough that they are valuable to the organization that that they are invaluable that they are loved that they are appreciated you know you're managing that type you for example and we've talked about this sort of stuff but you know if an eight is doing a 360 end of year review on a two if they treat that two like another eight that two will will be a grease stain on the floor by the end of that hour right you again to have self awareness and to know oh this is a two uh, I got to sort of approach this differently than I would if I was talking to someone of my own type right mm-hmm. you're going to save a lot of heartache you know we talked about fives they're private they have lower energy than a three seven or eight any day of the week right and you all just need to manage your energy at them because you all would drain them faster than any other number in some ways. And they have limited resources, you know, real or perceived. That's how it is. And they, they are they're in, they typically are introverts, not always, but I've met very few that weren't, didn't have a very strong introvert side. And you all tend to be extroverts, you know, uh, or ambiverts, one or the other, but lots of extroverts in the three, seven, eight category. And then nines, I think the thing that three, sevens and eights have to do when they're working with nines is not allow them to merge with the viewpoints of the group or the organization but to constantly be asking them, I want to know what you think. I don't want you necessarily to agree with what the group thinks. I want you to tell me what you think because I believe your presence matters. And I don't want you to duck by merging into what everyone else says by saying, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with what everyone's here. Because when you really push a nine, sometimes they, they have brilliant insights that if you can just get them to uh, assert themselves will be a real help to the organization. 
Yeah. You made me think one of my favorite guys, uh, Keith, he's a nine. We have a partnership. There's three partners. One partner's a one, Derek. Another partner's a seven, Matt. And Keith is the nine. And his exact, he's like, I'm the glue. Like, I'm the glue because he's like the peacekeeper. Because like a one and a seven, they, they process things very differently. And it's really cool to see how that partnership really thrives with the mm-hmm. three of them kind of coming together to make a better outcome. But that's a real life example of how I've seen a nine play out in a three person partnership. Yeah. Well, and the other great thing about them is, yeah, they're also called the mediators, which is what you're describing. Mm -hmm. And what's so beautiful about them is they bring this calm presence to every situation. And they have this unusual superpower of being able to see the world through the lens of every other type. Right. So they, they actually do sort of intuitively know how that one sees the world, how that seven sees the world, how to bring them to a middle of the table and to work well together. And also to make both parties, the one and the seven, feel understood, Mm -hmm. right? So they really do bring such a wonderful dynamic to uh, partnerships. And also because, I'll finish with this in nines, they are consensus builders. So they have a way of getting everybody on board and uh, believing, moving in the same direction. Yeah. I I think of just a few nines and it's like 100%. Like, I, I won't say any number's the most liked on the Enneagram, but I feel like every number loves a nine. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, just because they, they have a way of just, I feel like nines are great listeners too, from my experience. Like, and back to seeking consensus, they take like the input, you know, yeah. so, to get that. So let's, um let's just, uh, just remind your folks of this, that I think every number is beautiful, likable, whatever, to the degree that they're self-aware. In other words, that, that they're doing the work. They're learning about themselves. They're learning about other people. They're doing all the things that we're talking about. When a number is, the more a number lacks self-awareness, the easier it is to dislike them. I promise you. They will give you plenty of reasons not to like them to the degree that they lack self-awareness. Yeah. And that's that's like just humanity in general, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah. Unaware people, not a not I'm not seeking them out to go hang out with them. That's for sure. No, 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 no. And that's what to me, that's the greatest gift of the Enneagram is this whole piece of self-awareness. Well, my man, I know we're right at the end. I failed to mention this at the beginning, so maybe we'll put it on the intro. But uh, by the way, you're an incredible author too. The Road Back to You is the first book that I read of yours, which was kind of my introduction to to the Enneagram. So if you're out there listening to this and you're like, this was cool, I want to go deeper, definitely go Gideon's book, uh, The Road Back to You. And then he, he wrote kind of a second piece of that, The Story of You. What, what's the difference between those two books? I know they both discuss the Enneagram, but how would you yeah. say? Well, yeah, The Story of You is a great sort of a different take on the Enneagram. It's actually a great follow-up to the road back to you once a person knows their number and stuff like that. But uh, the, the Story of You helps us understand that each of our types, each of our personalities is built around a, a story that we tell ourselves about who we are and how we think the world works. It's also a story we tell others about who we are and how we think the world works, right? And it's really important for us in life as we grow into adulthood to make sure that the story we tell ourselves and others is accurate. And it's the one we want to tell in adulthood because if we just drag the old story from childhood into adulthood and continue to live live by its constraints and dictates... Oh, it's not good. And the Enneagram helps us identify that child story and gives us tools to adopt a new and better story for ourselves. Awesome. Who doesn't want that? No, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. So as we wrap here, I'm just going to close with one last question. Um, Ian, first off, you've been out to our experiences. We we call them experiences, not events. We don't like events. Those are a dime a dozen experiences are life-changing. And so you were kind enough to spend some time with us in Nashville at our very first launch event. Community loved it. You did this live workshop. And then you've come in to try out as well and met with our team. And if you'll allow us to have you back, we're probably due for another round of that because the team's more than, I think, almost tripled since the last time you were here. So this stuff works. I just want to say, like, for those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know, I don't just like throw endorsements around like Ian's work and the Enneagram stuff he does. It's it's life-changing. And I don't say that as a cliche. It's real. So thanks for all the work you've done with us, Ian. And you know, we are about do business, do life. That is our mission here. 
how do we help people grow freedom in their business and, and grow the business, but also create freedom in life and obviously live that on their terms and live it with joy. So if I get Ian Cron's definition of do business, do life, how, how would you describe that, Ian? Well, those are that's a very complicated question, man. That That's a little overwhelming to me to come off on the top of my head. You know, the first thing that comes to me is, you know, I think that that our work has to have meaning and purpose in order for it to feel satisfying. It's not enough to say, I'm going to work to make some money. You know what I mean? Or, I'm going to, I'm going to go to work so I can afford to play golf and, uh, you know, go to, you know, wherever for on vacation. These are not very satisfying things over the long haul. So for me, doing business means making a, a contribution to a better world to be able to bring resources to bear on things that we care deeply about right? Business is a means towards something, right? It's not an end. It's a, it's a means toward other things, right? Uh, and when we see it as an end, I think it becomes a little, it actually can be very toxic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we've seen that uh, people who've surrendered their whole lives to doing business and saw it as an end versus a, a means towards something great uh, outside of the corporate sphere, right? And, and I mean, doing life, I mean, look, for me, doing life has meant Working to, with all honesty and care and with great energy, to become a man, and and for others listening, a woman that is, and I'll use this phrase again, living out who they are in the highest expression of themselves, right? And that means looking at character. It means looking at uh, having to repair things in the past that need repairing. It means having self-awareness. So... For me, doing life is so intentional, and it look it, it requires that you burn calories, man. You got to do some work to make life what what life can be. So that's about as good as I can give you. If I if I if I had had if you'd given me a couple of hours, I'd have come up with something incredible. But that's about as good as I can get off the top of my head. Uh, hey, I think that was well said, and especially for being off the cuff, well put. So I appreciate your version of doing business, doing life, and Ian. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for all the value that you brought to whatever advisors or whoever else is out there listening to this. Once again, thank you and look forward to the next time our paths cross in person. Yeah, Brad, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks. All right. We'll see you in. Cheers. All right. On to this week's featured review. This one comes to us from Warren M from Illinois. He says, a must-listen for financial advisors seeking balance, five stars. This podcast is an invaluable resource for financial advisors looking to achieve a better work-life balance. The podcast offers a fresh perspective on success, focusing on personal growth and well-being alongside professional accomplishments. Each episode features engaging interviews with successful advisors who share their stories and strategies for striking the right balance between work and life. Podcast content is both informative and inspiring encouraging me to reassess my priorities and implement changes in my life. Warren, thanks so much for listening in. Uh, one of the the new things with the DBDL, the Do Business, Do Life podcast, that's quite different from the Elite Advisor Blueprint, my former show, is as I thought through how to help advisors all across the US and all across the world, wherever you're listening into this, how to help them actually do business have success there, but also create freedom in their life where they didn't become a slave to the business they were building was to model advisors themselves that have cracked that code. And so every fourth episode is a triad member spotlight and um, where we just talk about real life stuff, like the good, the bad, and ugly of what it means to be an entrepreneur, what it means to be a financial advisor. And for example, just the Tom Jacobs episode, episode 12, Tom was literally a burnout when we met him. And just a year later, had almost doubled his business and gone from 20 plus appointments a week to less than one or two appointments a week, all from just having a different playbook to operate under and viewing his business through the business owner lens, entrepreneur lens versus the financial advisor lens. And so it is possible, oftentimes faster than you think possible. And I'm just so glad that's what we're on the mission to do, help advisors level up in business and life, create freedom and joy in both business and life. And so 
Still glad the podcast is hitting home. We'll keep those episodes coming every fourth episode. So get ready for episode 16 with my friend Anthony in Chicago. Uh, should be an awesome one as uh, I've seen him do something very similar to Tom over the years. So with that, thanks for listening in and uh, we'll keep the episodes coming. Take care. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Do Business, Do Life podcast. As we wrap, for access to show notes, transcripts, and exclusive content from all of our show's guests, don't forget to visit bradleyjohnson.com forward slash podcast. And before you go, I've got a quick favor to ask. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support the show by leaving your rating and review on iTunes. Not only do we read every single comment, but this will help the show rank and get discovered by new listeners and other financial advisors out there that can benefit from the show. Trust me, it really does help. So thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode. These conversations are intended to provide financial advisors with ideas, strategies, concepts, and tools that could be incorporated into their advisory practice. Advisors are ultimately responsible for ensuring implementation of anything discussed is in accordance with any and all regulatory and compliance responsibilities and obligations.